Welcome to the HR Uprising podcast. This podcast series explores HR hot topics and challenges through conversations with relevant experts and real-life HR learning and OD professionals. The HR Uprising is about learning through collaboration and evidence-based action. We want colleagues to have the confidence and skills to rise up through their organizations by delivering real, lasting business value. Now, introducing your host, chartered psychologist, experienced change agent, entrepreneur, speaker, and coach, Lucinda Carney. Hello, and welcome to this week's HR Uprising podcast. I'm your host, Lucinda Carney, and I'm going to be running a solo episode today. The inspiration for this particular episode came from something I saw on um, an HR Ninjas post, actually, where people were asking for how to design an appraisal I think they were asking about how to design an appraisal template, but it also became how to design an appraisal process. And obviously this is something that I do for a living. I regularly, regularly, because we offer appraisal software, talk to people about the design of their templates and what works and what doesn't work. And I could not believe that I'd never done an episode on this before and I hadn't built any collateral. And I think that's a great example if you've ever come across the term deletion, where just because something you're very, very familiar with doesn't mean that other people are really familiar with it. So I thought it was a really good topic, therefore, for me to pick as a how-to topic. And I have uh, developed this and there will also be a paper that you can download if you prefer to read things. And we will probably do some templates as well. So check the show notes. Um, I'm obviously recording this a couple of weeks before it's going to go out. So we'll aim to get lots of collateral, as we always do, that you can download in terms of resources. So the topic here is how to design an appraisal process. And within that, I'll talk about how you'd actually design the form. And I thought it was, first of all, the first thing I would do if I was working with a client to think about their appraisal process is to consider the circumstances. So the first thing you need to do is to consider what is the current situation and why do you want to change it? So By that I mean, do you already have an appraisal process or a system of some description in place? It doesn't matter whether it's on paper or online. The point of it is, what do you want to change about it? And what is the problem that you're trying to fix? And if you think back to, I think it was our fifth episode back way back when, over a year ago, um, we talked to Rob Rina, who was talking about evidence-based HR. What is our evidence? What is the actual problem we're trying to address here? So typically, I hear that people say that the appraisal that um, they're using, it's not worth the, you know, the output isn't worth the paper it's written on. No one completes it properly. Everyone hates it. It's just a paperwork exercise or it's far too long or backward looking. So those are the typical complaints that I'd hear said um, from usually HR professionals that we're working with. Now, the thing with that is if you hear people say it's not worth the paper, it's worth not written on, no one's completing it properly, everyone hates it, it's a paperwork exercise, too long or it's backward focused. What we've actually got here are a mix of both cultural and system issues and design issues. The fact that no one values the process is actually about the organisation you operate in, their leadership and management behaviours. It's something which is endemic as to whether or not that appraisal activity or conversation is valued. And therefore, the big thing to be aware of is that simply changing a form or changing a process or a system isn't going to fix the problem on its own. It's actually a large part of it being cultural. 
for example, if, if you hear people say everyone hates it, why is that? Why is it that they want to hate it? Is it actually because the form is too long? And sometimes I have seen some very long forms and backward looking. Or is it because when they sit down with their manager, the manager is going through the motions and it makes them feel devalued. And, and actually it's a really negative experience because the manager doesn't make it feel valuable. And that is probably more common. In terms of things like the form itself, I have genuinely come across a number of organisations, um, I won't name, name them, um, where they actually have had as many as 10 pages in the appraisal form. Now, for goodness sake, who wouldn't go through the motions by the get to 10 pages? It doesn't matter whether you are the most engaged manager in the world. You are going to lose the will to live by the time you've got to page 10. That has got to equate something like three hours and it's too much. So, the point is many organisations do have forms which are overcomplicated. Although they may be full of fabulous questions, that's not going to fit within one conversation. Um, and I'll talk more later as to how you can break out your process to make it more palatable and still get all of the information in. So the key point I'm saying about understanding your current situation is that unless people are definitely only complaining about the design of the form, there are almost certainly some behavioural issues underneath this where your managers are going through the motions. And that may be to do with management training or awareness. It may be to do the culture where the senior leaders don't value it um, or, have, or also go through the motions. So changing the form or process or system without some level of cultural exercise to gain buy-in is probably going to end up with the same result with your new form. So make sure you think about the whole cultural piece, not just form changes. Now, the second situation that we might come across is where there is no process or system in place and you want to introduce something new. So again, here, what is the actual problem? Is it something you think that you've got to have something because, you know, some sort of appraisal process? Um, or is it something that people are actually requesting within the organisation or from leadership? And this does flag up this whole piece where we have... Um, a school of thought, I'll call it that, although I think you might say some of it is marketing spin, that we just should chuck out the appraisal or any sort of assessment altogether. Um, and that is a school of thought. The challenge that you have got there is you end up with a vacuum. And it's a vacuum in uh, an environment in most cases where managers are not in the habit of talking to people regularly, of giving clarity. If you look at the statistics around um, management skills in the UK, um, and actually worldwide, the ability for managers to provide good quality objectives or clarity and gather feedback are not as high as we might want them to be. So if you take away any kind of structure, the question that I would say is, I think we're being naive if we think that um, managers are naturally going to fill that with some sort of regular process um, just without a system or without any triggering from HR. Uh, but I think there is a school of thought where people do start asking for things where they say, I've never had an appraisal. You do say, oh, no one's ever given me an appraisal. And it makes the individual feel that they're not valued. So there might be something about um, employees want to feel valued. Uh, so that might be a business need. We want people to feel valued, in which case you need to make sure that whatever you design um, is delivered in a way that, that uh, managers have skills to deliver it in a way that makes people feel valued. So they are not just going through the motions. And maybe there are questions which are about development. Um, it's not just purely about performance. It's, it's something where you're pulling data out, which might allow you to give people access to future opportunities. The sort of the career aspects of a, a performance appraisal or talent management aspects of it, you'd want to make sure that something happens with that and there's some sort of 
um, carrot, if you like, involved with that, because that will make people buy into it and see there's something in it for them, as opposed to a purely performance driven appraisal form, which is, you know, have you achieved the goals for the business, uh, which is often seen to be more for the business. So thinking about that, so if the case is that people are saying, actually, they want, you know, the problem is that people don't feel valued, you need to make sure that whatever you design, process and form is going to encourage people to feel valued. Sounds obvious, but it's really, really easy. Um, I've seen worked with organisations where they say they've got a problem about people being valued and they are going to put in uh, a really rigid performance-related pay process. Now, it's quite tricky to align performance-related pay. There are aspects of people feeling valued with performance-related pay in that you are saying that we're going to make sure that our high performers are visible and they will get um, better reward, whether it is pay or access to development. So there is something which has got a positive message, but there's definitely also an aspect where people feel that it's being they're being squeezed and they're being rated, and that may cause conflict with managers who are learning to coach and develop and encourage. So just be cautious about what you're trying to achieve and what you design and make sure they're aligned. Take a step back and think, what is the real impact of that? And I think if you're an, a people professional in an organisation, you often have conflicting demands where the people at the top saying they want more visibility of performance, they want to drive performance, they want to deal with underperformance. So it's performance, 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 yet the people in the organisation want development and to feel valued. And the challenge you've got is to design some sort of process and system which is going to bring them together. And you also need to make sure that the messaging is congruent across those pieces. Again, messaging being all about culture change. So it's just not as simple as building a template, is it? Well, you can, it, it is as simple as building a template, uh, but you may not get the goal that you want um, by, by building that template. It could even be counterproductive um, and you spend all your time chasing people or you know, people moaning about it. So those are things, if you want to know more about things like performance-related pay, choosing ratings, what actually works in performance management, there's lots of white papers. We'll put links in the show notes. I've already written on those topics. So I'm not going to go into those in detail. But back to this. So we started off, first of all, what was the current situation? Why do you want to do it? So start by thinking, why do I want to do it? What's the situation? Um, what are we doing currently? And why do we want to change it? And then the second thing I would want you to think about is what is the environment or culture that I'm in or we're within? So that's going to effectively have an impact on how open and responsive people are to complexity and process full stop. So if you've got, if you work within quite a mature corporate organisation, um, even like a public sector organisation, you may be quite used to people who are used to doing processes. They've been expected for a long time. They may be going through the motions, but there are established processes that people are used to following. So in those situations, uh, you know that you can probably, it's not so difficult, you've just got about defining the process and people will potentially run with it. On the other hand, you might work in uh, a more startup or smaller or more entrepreneurial, let's say chaotic organisation where things are a little bit hit and miss. And there's no point in expecting people to suddenly go to monthly one-to-ones or more than that uh, and expect it to happen there. You probably want something that's just a little bit more free and easy and a bit lighter touch. So it's about being realistic. So if you've maybe moved from a corporate HR role into an SME or vice versa, what works in your old organisation might not work in your new organisation. And the pace of change may be different, the pace at which you were prepared to operate. 
So the, you know, you might be able to roll something out and switch out one set of paperwork for another in a more mature organisation because you've already got the process established. But in a a newer organisation, you may just want to start really light um, and just build up in terms of getting people getting used to it. Either way, again, with any kind of change or if you want to up the process or um, you, you will need, again, a level of cultural change to it, a level of communication around it. So the more mature organisation, they're probably going to want to know why this is the right way forward, why similar businesses are doing this, just sort of they might want third party evidence of why this is a good way of doing things. Um, Case studies could be quite good. Entrepreneurial organisations, they will like case studies and examples, but they're more likely to be excited about the future that this new process will give them the benefits. So whether it's visibility, um, speed, anything that's more aligned with where they're trying to go, what's important to your organisation. Is it about compliance and process and doing the right thing? Or is it about high performance, um, engaging staff, uh, retaining talent? Think about what the right messages are that will appeal to your culture. And also remember that often the things that appear appeal to the top of the organisation, the messaging that makes the top of an organisation buy into something is not the same that would get the uh, managers and grassroots levels of the organisation buy in. So when you're communicating things, ensure that the language um, works for the level of the organisation. And the third um, pre-thinking that I'd say is to think, what is the purpose? So why are we designing this new appraisal form slash process? So the most common reasons that I hear for people wanting to change it or have a new form or process are as follows. Very often you'll hear people say, I want to encourage more meaningful conversations. People are going through the motions. That's the opposite of that. That's what we want. We want to encourage more regular feedback. We want it to be more engaging and forward facing. Um, Or we want to refresh it and uh, just generally liven it up it's got a bit dull and stayed so those would be the common things that I would hear and those are they're okay purposes in terms of the user experience I would encourage you to think is there anything strategic that you want to do do you want to reduce um, attrition um, are there any sort of directs you want to uh, identify and develop people with key skills in the organization are there any sort of talent management uh, type approaches that you want to get out of it Do you want to increase the quality of objective setting so that people actually are performing at a higher level? So I very rarely hear people say those, but actually if you thought about it as to an organisational strategic level, those are probably quite important outputs as well. Um, But very, very commonly it's about making it meaningful, getting us to have meaningful conversations. Now, again, all of those um, sort of reasons I'd hear from people what they want to do is, is about management behaviours. Again, it's not forms. So the formal process is the tool that we hang our management, our engaging management behaviours off. So again, it's going to come back to, don't forget how important leadership behaviours and culture change might be in bringing along this, this refresh. You know, what you've been given might be just seen as just a, a just do it project, but actually it might be really requiring culture change. The other common reason that people would maybe approach us uh, when they want a new system or they want a new uh, process 
um, is because they want to either introduce some sort of behavioural indicators of competence. So they've got a new set of competencies or they've got values and they want to measure people against them. So they want to give people feedback and actually perhaps see whether or not they've got talent or even rate people against those. And the other thing, if they want to introduce ratings in terms of performance, which may be linked to talent management or performance related pay. So those are the common things and those are legitimate reasons. Again, though, it all depends on your starting point as to how you do it. And the other challenge with um, these two particular reasons why people might say they want to introduce a new system process, um, and again, thinking why we're doing it, why do we want to measure performance? Maybe it is about increasing the overall levels of competence in the organisation or about um, creating talent pipelines or ratings. It's about redistributing reward. Um, it may be that people have said in their staff survey that they want that. So it's about engagement. So there'll be bigger reasons in principle that we might have there. But what happens with those two um, when we've got behavioural indicators or ratings is that all too often organisations overcomplicate the form. I have seen some absolutely beautifully engineered appraisal forms, which would just be exhausting to fill out. Now, there is one exception where you can't do anything about it, um, which is asking regulatory questions. So, for example, we work with financial services clients and they often have a list of there is no getting away from a tick box set of questions. The problem you've got there then is if that's woven within your regular annual appraisal, that is going to probably devalue it because by the time you've got to the bottom of the tick, tick box, you've lost energy to have a nice quality discussion. I'll talk later about how I'd recommend you split that out in terms of the overall cycle. So the key principle, I would always say, whatever the organisation, whatever you're doing is simplify rather than complicate. Um, keep ratings and tick boxes to a minimum and try and keep it simple because that's how you encourage the conversation. So are you with me so far? Hopefully we've thought about the context, what level of it is cultural um, and what level of it is actually system or process. What's the purpose? We've done some pre-thinking. Five principles, quick principles, if you are designing your appraisal form. My first point is keep it as simple as possible. Maximum of three pages, ideally no more than two. And I'll give you some tips on how you can do that more easily later. The second point I make is see if there's a way in which you can enable both parties to prepare aspects of it in advance. So is there a sort of a pre-preparation document or could they actually fill out bits of the actual form and then just come together to discuss it and capture the summary? That will really aid the discussion when they're together because they've taken the time to think about it. Um, and it, it's just going to enable a better quality conversation. It does require discipline, but it will make, um, make for a better quality. Um, if you build that into the form, it's more likely to happen. If you are incorporating competencies or behaviours, this is point number three, then I would say the ideal number is probably about five behaviours. I try and stay way below seven. Seven, I think, is the absolute maximum. Um, and But certainly less is more in terms of behaviours, because if you discuss each one in turn, you've got to come up with two or three or four examples. You've probably got to rate it. And by the time you've done that, you've got to talk about performance against objectives. It's actually, it's enough. So if you do have to have lots of competencies or behaviours, could you encourage people just to pick the top three to discuss in that particular um, appraisal? So try and keep those down um, and you know, don't have 15 competencies sitting there. 
The other thing to think about is in terms of your language, when you are designing your appraisal form, and note I've used the word appraisal just because it's pretty synonymous, people understand it, um, but is it a backward looking appraisal or is it more forward looking? So is it talking about what have I achieved? What did you do? Capture your past achievements? Or is it more about um, you know what are you going to do and more future focused and strengths that you've come forward? In fairness, those examples I gave them were actually quite um, positive ones in terms of they were still achievement focused. Um, that's the language we use in our own appraisal. So we actually call it an achievement discussion. And you can completely swing the tone by thinking about what you call it and what you call your process. Um, you know, performance review or appraisal, that is fairly old school and people call it tarnished, if you like. So, you know, use your imagination, what it can be called. But the fundamental thing is people generally do need to have some sort of wash up or check in. Um, and if we focus it on what's achievement, then that does feel quite positive. The same thing um, links in terms of terminology with ratings, if you use them. Uh, but there's a couple other tips that you can consider. If you are using ratings, I would consider a four point rating rather than a five. Certainly we used to use a five in my um, corporate life, but I've come round to the thinking that people actually find that number three in a five point scale makes them feel average, even though that is the midpoint and where you'd expect the majority of people to be. Psychologically, people would prefer to be rated in the top half of a scale. And also people tend to only use the three middle bits of a scale. So if you go for a four point rating, people will probably use ratings two, three and four. And I'm using numbers for simplicity. You can use words. Um, they'll ignore one. And therefore, the majority of people will get rated three. That will be felt more positive psychologically than um, three out of a five point scale. Again, use the language in a positive way. Avoid words like average. Talk about it in terms of achieved expectations or almost achieved expectations as opposed to didn't achieve as much as possible. So those are my five principles for designing the appraisal form. And finally, let's think about how you fit that form into the process. So if I reconnect with the reason that most people want to refresh their appraisal form or process, it's almost always to do with better quality conversations. I mean, very few organisations want worse quality conversations. Um, but as I said earlier, it doesn't really matter how beautiful your new form is if it's used in a, 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 if the conversation is poor. And also, if it's only used once a year, it is a limit to how meaningful you can make the conversation. Or if you are going to be very, very diligent and gather examples from the whole year, a lot of that feedback's quite irrelevant by the time you get to the end of the year. You know, um, the analogy of the golf course, if you're giving people on, on the 18th hole feedback about what they did on the first hole, that's way too late. So you want to give people feedback throughout the year. So that's why I would try and think of it in the context of a full year round cycle. And the beauty of this is that you can split certain aspects of the appraisal form out, such as development discussions and career aspirations, and use those to be conversations that take place at the different parts of the year. Now, I've become a real advocate of this because there are certain benefits that I see. So just to be clear, what I'm saying is, if you think of your typical appraisal form, it will talk about goals and objectives. Did you achieve them or didn't you achieve them? It will talk about performance this year and expectations for next year. It will talk about your development requirements. Um, it may talk about your behaviours and competencies. It will talk about your overall performance. And then it might go on to career aspirations. Typically, that's at the end. Everyone's got 
lost the will to live. So that that's the bit that lots of people are most excited about and perhaps just skipped over the most. So if you pull out the bits which are the development focused bits and the um, aspirational bits and just keep the focus, there's a performance focus then and almost a people or development focused aspect. The benefits you've got by doing this and splitting them out to different parts of the year is that First of all, it shortens the appraisal form. So the appraisal form is, you know, focused on performance. Uh, it's short and succinct. That therefore enables you to have a better quality conversation. So if there are some issues about performance, they're more likely to be discussed. The manager's more likely to think about how to put them over or the recognition for high performance is, is discussed as well. If you do that, you can then adapt the frequency because what I would suggest, and I'll give you an example in a moment, is you then break that appraisal form, if you like, into four touch points throughout the year, quarterly. And rather than having a three-hour epic at the year end, then you could have four 45-minute um, sessions throughout the year. So if you increase the frequency, it will shorten the content. So people are taking the same amount of time overall, but the conversations will increase the quality. It also allows you to have a cadence of performance conversations. Now, this is really useful because by creating this cadence, this flow of every quarter, people have to, particularly if you've got a system, um, update whichever aspect you're asking them to do at the end of that quarter. That allows you as, as um, HR to monitor it and to chase up those who aren't doing it and to encourage and embed new habits. I think it's very hard to create a habit that only happens once a year as in a once yearly appraisal. If you've got four touch points, however, that's much more of a flow. It's a cadence that makes it easier for you to embed. And that perhaps is where you get better culture of conversations. As I touched on before, um, if you separate conversations about development or career against um, the actual performance ones, it will also create a timetable to your performance management year. What that means is that you can respond to those requirements in a more timely fashion. And this is particularly relevant if you are a standalone HR, um, you know, HR department of one, for example. So if you said at the end of quarter one, we do development needs, that means you've got time to review those and take a look at them and ideally respond to them earlier in the year. If you respond to them earlier, people are more likely to get the skills they need to be successful. And of course, that's why we set development needs. So by doing that, perhaps the development needs at that um, end of quarter one, um, I'll talk in terms of your performance review, you might do that at end of quarter two, so a mid-year appraisal. And then at the end of quarter three, you might talk about career um, aspirations. And that, if you think about it, is a great time to have that chat. It could just take 20 minutes. Not everybody has got high ambitions, but you do know whether they're going to look like they're going to end the year as a high performer. So at that stage, you know whether people who are looking for the next role or you need to keep interested or engaged, that's the right time to have that conversation. The other final benefit, my seventh benefit um, to splitting things out is that if you've got certain regulatory aspects, I alluded to some earlier, um, like financial services that you have to include as part of an appraisal, but you can't avoid it, but they make it super long. You can split those out to sit in the mid-year appraisal or give it its own meeting and that will ensure it doesn't detract from the other conversations. It doesn't devalue them because it's, it just exhausts people. All right, so hopefully you're still with me. Just finally, so a way in which you could do this, I was alluding to it already, and it works for a number of our clients who do this, is a year-round performance process. I describe it, if you think about a clock face, so at the start of the year, at 12 o'clock, we obviously need to set objectives. So we have a meeting or one-to-one -one where we set objectives, or more usually, you have the 
appraisal of last year, we close down last year's appraisal and then we look forward to this year and what our objectives are going to be for this year. So we give people clear objectives. Going forwards, in an ideal world, you'd expect people to have regular one-to-ones or check-ins, ideally monthly, um, able to update objectives if needed. Um, but the next formal check is what I was talking about before, which where we might just have a brief one-to-one, but the focus is about development. We get those development needs discussed and met earlier in the year, and that's something we don't necessarily need to talk about at year end. Then at the half-year point, we've got our mid-year appraisal. So what I think you can do there is put more focus on behaviours, for example. So if you've got a competency, if you do really need to have lots of competencies, why not make that the point at which you have a very brief conversation about performance, but a longer conversation about behaviours? That could work. Also, if you've got to do something like financial services, do the SMCR, the conduct um, conduct assessment, maybe you do that here, saving the end of year meaty appraisal so it's not part of that same um, same conversation. So you've got your mid-year appraisal. And the one other thing that we, where um, the mid-year appraisal is really important is if you are using performance-related pay and you're doing ratings, it is important to have some sort of mid-year rating so that you're managing people's expectations as to whether or not you think they are on track or not for full performance. Then if you think on your clock face, we get to nine o'clock. And as I say, hopefully people are doing one-to-ones in between. But because at least you are putting these four formal touch points in, you can oversee and ensure that people are at least doing these. Then that's when our opportunity to talk about talent management, uh, to spot people's high potential, and um, succession planning, all those sort of things. And of course, spacing it out from um, another part of the year gives you the time to think about that at that stage in the year, giving you a timetable, if you like, for your HR activities. So, you know, that's a model that works well for lots of people. I know others that do twice a year. I know people who do three times a year. I know people that do weekly KPI check-ins. That's fairly heavy duty. Um, But I think the key is that managing people does require us to talk to them more than once a year. With people working increasingly remotely, it's even more important to keep people connected. And, you know, it's it's our role as people professionals to give people clarity and a steer about what's expected. We could say, why don't we just ask people to have regular conversations and leave them to get on with it? Well, I think that's the question is, is that would that work? Would that work? I, I was thinking about the analogy of people who want to big on a fitness diet or on a, on a diet um, there's no accountability there and, you know if, you, if you're not going to get on the scales weekly or monthly you know how do you know at the end of the year that you've had any sort of check-ins with people that they're on track that we're we're both on the same page that they're engaged I'm just not quite sure that that will happen without some level of structure um, and you do find that people want structure and and clarity and it's really easy as a line manager um, speaking on myself, it's very easy to get swamped with the day job and not have time to help others and guide others. So if you don't enforce it to a certain extent, enforce that discipline, schedule it in where there's certain meetings with certain clarity about what people need to discuss at those times of year, you're not going to get a consistent approach um, to, to within your organisation and you're not necessarily going to get those meaningful um, quality conversations. So I would say think about your process and forms as encouraging and enabling the right behaviours. Make sure you do have sponsorship from the top in terms of words and ideally behaviours. And uh, then if you've got systems, it's great. makes it much easier to nicely nag um, until those behaviours become habit. Think that nicely nagging is a key skill of a people professional, certainly in-house. 
So I hope you found that useful. I tried to keep it um, fairly succinct, but I've hit the half hour point anyway. I mentioned earlier there's a number of other white paper documents that may be useful in this sphere if you want it. So you check out the show notes at hruprising.com. We put links there that you can access them. And as ever, there's loads and loads of links and resources um, on the Actus website, actus.co.uk. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to the HR Uprising podcast. You can access more information, including resources or links mentioned in the show at our website, www.hruprising.com. Also, you might want to join our LinkedIn community or tweet to us at HR Uprising. We'd love to hear from you.